Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by journalist and culture critic Sam Sanders. He's the host of a flagship Vulture podcast called Intuit, a twice-weekly survey of all things pop culture. Before heading over to New York Magazine, Sanders worked for more than a decade at NPR. There, he hosted the award-winning radio show, It's Been a Minute, which featured interviews with everyone from Tracy Ellis Ross and Michaela Cole to Bowen Yang and John Legend. But no matter the show or the network it's on, Sanders brings a natural buoyancy and curiosity to each of his conversations. He's also, I think, the perfect guest to help us close out this long, strange, strike-filled summer. So today we're doing something a little bit different. On the first half of this episode, Sam and I do a summer in review. We talk Barbenheimer, the strike, the mugshot, the Montgomery brawl, and a couple other stories that have defined these past few months. Then on the back half, we tell some of Sam's story his complicated upbringing in Texas, how he found his voice on and off mic, the assignment at NPR that changed his life, and why he's most excited about this new chapter of his. That's all coming up next with journalist and podcast host, Sam Sanders. Stick with us.
Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Sam Sanders. Hi. Welcome to the show. It's so good to be here. How do you feel? I feel great. I feel like so much of my life in the last year has been like reemerging from pandemic life. <laughs> um, I still work exclusively from home. Like I record everything from home. And at the peak of the pandemic, I was just not seeing people because I was at home recording this show. And now there are more and more opportunities to like leave the house to do a work uh-huh. thing. So... I got showered today earlier than I usually do. I put on one of my fun shirts and I drove up here to hang with you. So this is great. I like it. We're in the flesh. We are in the flesh. You know, it's funny. My 
shower routine changed during pandemic? <laughs> you know, you used to like, I used to exercise in the morning. That was then my first shower, question, actually. And then go to work. Yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> but now it's like, I get up, I work. And then it, if I'm going somewhere, I'm going to shower around 5 p.m. I'm telling y'all everything. It's you fine. Really, it's fine. We have it's a fine. lot to get into. <laughs> um, I want to start in a very Sam Sanders kind of place. Yeah. Give me the 30 second elevator pitch for your podcast into it. Yeah. It is a talk show about the pop culture we are obsessed with. The movies and TV and music and books and memes and internet that we can't stop thinking about, can't stop hating, can't stop loving. Pretty good. That wasn't long enough. Should I do more? <laughs> the timer says seven more seconds. Okay. Also, we get to interview really cool guests like Chance the Rapper. We just had him on. That was Super a great fun. episode. Thank you. We're going to talk about that episode at the okay. end of this one. Let's do it. Um, with that, why don't we do a kind of summer in review to start? Because these past few months have been a lot. It's been a lot. It's been a lot. It's like, been a lot. It's been maybe too much. Although some of the stuff that has felt like too much has been an excellent exercise in indulgence. Mm -hmm. When I think of the three biggest pop stories of this year right now, it's Beyonce going on tour, mm -hmm. it's Taylor Swift going on tour, and it's Barbie taking over the world. And all three of those things were just like supersized as pop culture moments. And I feel like it's too much, but also we needed it. We have been in <laughs> lockdown for years. And so part of why you see people losing their minds at Beyonce shows, at Taylor shows, it's because we didn't have that for a few years. Mm -hmm. We're so happy to have it again. I even think of the movies in general. There was a lot of talk when the pandemic was shutting theaters down. Will it ever come back? Will we ever do it? And then Top Gun Maverick comes out and everyone's like, is this a fluke or are we back? And seeing Barbie succeed so soundly, it's like, yes, movies are back. So to all of us, I'm like, pop culture is back. I had a couple of those on my list. Why don't we just jump in? Let's do it. Now that a whole lot of people have seen Barbie and Oppenheimer. Yeah. And now that the Barbenheimer phenomenon has settled just a little bit, yeah. it's calmed down just a little bit. Yeah. Where are you at on these two films, respectively? Why don't we start with Oppenheimer? I go to Christopher Nolan Films for amazing and spectacular visual effects. This sounds like you're running for office uh -huh. as moviegoer. Yeah. And I was very surprised that this Christopher Nolan film felt like it had an Aaron Sorkin script. There was so much dialogue, which was delivered brilliantly and beautiful by the actors in the film, but I wanted some more of the Christopher Nolan special effects wizardry. Mm -hmm. I just don't go to Christopher Nolan for dialogue. Are you a Nolan guy? No. But the ones that I have enjoyed from him, I like the effects. What are your favorites? Oh, gosh. Um, I actually saw Tenet during pandemic. And I was like, oh, wow, interesting. Still don't understand. It, it, no one does. What's the other? It, not Inception. Was it Inception? Mm -hmm. Inception. Which Batman movie was him? It was all three of them. Yes. Those are great. <laughs> <laughs> those are great. <laughs> but yeah, it's like when I think of what I loved about all those movies, it wasn't the dialogue. Mm -hmm. That said, they do the work. You know, it is a technical feat. Kudos to him. I think my thoughts on Barbie are, gosh, super, 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 super fun. As soon as you get in any way analytical about that script and that plot past the 101 level, you're like, oh, what do you mean? So many movies are built on this idea of a hero's journey. Joseph Campbell. Yeah. There's someone who experiences something that disrupts their world. Then they have to go on a quest to reset their world. In the process, they lose some things, they gain some things, they learn some things. But what I found with Barbie 
was that the film couldn't figure out if Barbie or Ken should have had the hero's journey mm. when in fact America Ferreira's character should have had the hero's journey. She is the mother of the young teen who sets off the Barbie drama. And I, no spoilers here, but if if you've seen this film or not, what America Ferreira's character does sets off the action in the film. And towards the end of the film, she has a monologue that crystallizes the emotional stakes of the whole endeavor. Yet we know the least about her and she gets the least amount of plot. What did you think of that monologue? I thought it was delivered beautifully. Sam Sanders pauses before answering. <laughs> when I first heard it, I was like, yes. And then as soon as I began, and so I saw it twice first weekend because I wanted to have thoughts about it. And as soon as I talked to my friends whose opinions I respect and like to hear, we all were just kind of like, it's a little one-on-one. There was a version of feminism in Barbie that did not at all acknowledge how feminism can, needs to be different when it intersects with sexuality, when it intersects with race. This was a very queer-coded movie in which no one's actually publicly queer. What do you mean by that? All of the marketing for Barbie felt gay as fuck. And I loved it. And then I get into the movie, and the Allen character is, I guess, supposed to be gay. And Hari Neff, Barbie doctor, is a trans woman, but it's never spoken of. Mm-hmm. And they don't let Allen be gay. Kate McKinnon is almost the sphinx or oracle that sends Barbie on this quest. Queer-coded character. Let her be gay, too? I don't know. I I was telling friends on one of my shows, Vibe Check, I was like, I would have loved this Barbie film even more if Barbie's whole quest was just figuring out that she's a lesbian. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and Ken is actually gay and in love with Simulu Ken. Do you feel duped in a way? I don't feel duped. I feel like Greta did the damn thing. You just feel that there's a disconnect between the marketing and then the actual materials in the film. I also feel like you cannot make a blockbuster that's too gay. Why is that? Name one. Next question. (laughs) Name one. Name name a blockbuster that's just like super fucking gay. Top Gun. (laughs) Touche. I'm leaning away from the mic because I'm laughing so loud. Touche. But no, I think that that movie, one, had to answer to so many stakeholders. You got to make Mattel happy while also kind of mocking Barbie. You have to make a blockbuster because everyone's been waiting for this film for years and it needs to be feminist. Mm -hmm. So like given all those constraints, she did a wonderful job. I think what I want to see next is an indie take on Barbie that is entirely intersectional and directed by and starring Michaela Cole. Let's do that. Sign me up. Yeah. Wherever I can invest stock. Yeah. Yeah. That said, I loved Barbie. It's a fun ride. But... No blockbuster can fully address intersectionality. And, that, and, and, and I get that. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. I got us both ice cream. Cool. Hi, Barbie. 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 Oh, hi, Alan. There are no multiples of Alan. He's just Alan. Yeah, I'm I'm confused about that. You mentioned Mattel. There have been a few stories where 
executives from the company have talked about how they're going to go into the... The Mattel Industrial Complex. The toy box. Yeah. They're going to make a Marvel Cinematic Universe, to which I say, I guess. (laughs) Which we've all been waiting for. Oh, honestly, though. No. Hold on. Hold on. Don't make this Lena Dunham is going to do Polly Pocket. I'm fine with that. If she makes Polly Pocket Hannah Horvath... (laughs) If she does that. I'm in a thousand percent. Right. Lena Lena is a is a friend of the show. We love her. We love her. And we will support. That said, in what world does anyone need an Uno movie? How do you make a plot out of that? I've actually written a couple scripts for it. <laughs> uh, collectively, these two films, Barbie and Oppenheimer, have made more than two billion dollars around the world. The opening weekend in July was one of the five highest grossing openings in the history of motion pictures. But the backdrop for all this success, as you well know, is this historic dual labor strike spearheaded by the actors and the writers against the studios. And hats off to them. In solidarity, baby. Still going strong in the you heat. You know what? Get it. Well, Anywho, go ahead. I want to ask you, because as someone who makes a twice weekly show about pop culture, mm-hmm. whose focus is primarily around new art being released, mm-hmm. how are you thinking about this fight between the creators and the studios? I'm at the math ain't mathin'. There's no way Bob Iger or any of these other top executives can actually justify the discrepancy in pay. Who's the one that no one likes? David Zasloff. Uh, he is. HBO, the Discovery Match. Yeah. Over the last several years, I want to say four or five years, he's made in total half a billion dollars. Can anyone say that he is worth half a billion dollars when the writers of these shows, some of them are on food stamps? And so it's like, that's where I'm at. The math is not mathing. And I don't care what these studios say. I don't care what they propose. Until you, like, shrink that gap, it's not right. Mm. And this is not an entertainment industry thing. This is an American capitalism thing. You look at every industry. The gap between the highest earners and the lowest earners is as big as it's been in several decades And so that's why you're seeing not just writers and actors striking, you're seeing teachers strike, you're seeing hotel workers strike, you're seeing postal workers strike. It's happening everywhere. And I think that this is just part of this is part of a larger wave of people seeing across all industries that the math ain't math. That's it. Do you think they'll reach a resolution soon? You know, we are taping this what towards the end of August. There have been some proposals sent out by the studios Already, the actors and writers are like, hell to the naw. So I suppose progress has been made because proposals are like out there and can be talked about. And that wasn't the case a month ago, but it ain't over yet. And there's probably going to be a few more rounds of proposals till they get somewhere where they can both agree. But yeah, it's not over yet. What is your take on this? You cover the same stuff I do. I think the writers will reach a deal first. Okay. I think they will get some of what they want. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I think the actors will, unfortunately, because without writers, they won't have that solidarity. Mm-hmm. I think sooner than later, probably by mid to end of October, mm-hmm. that they will make a deal. Okay. And that the interim agreements they made with the studios mm-hmm. that they have now suspended. Yeah. They're going to look back on that and say, "We, I don't think we should have done those. It always felt weird because it was, it's, it's so when they got these exemptions for things to keep on going yeah. during the strike. Independent project. Yeah, but but it wasn't really independent. Is A24 at this point independent? They're a juggernaut, right? Mm-hmm. Also, studios like A24 who got the exemptions, they weren't saying we're going to give these actors and writers the best deal ever. They were saying we will 
match these contracts to the terms that y'all agree upon eventually. Yeah. So they were not doing any better than what the studios will do. That's the part that's lost. They agreed to the terms that they're asking for right now. Yeah. But the clause that everyone keeps missing is that those contracts are superseded by the final, by the final deal that contract. they make. Yeah. And everyone else has said, well, they demonstrate that the deals can be made. But to your point, they know the math does not math. Yeah. And listen, I... Like A24 artistically, I have interviewed so lots we, of creatives of about A24 projects. It's not about whether the work is good or bad. Mm -hmm. It's about whether the compensation model is good or bad. I hope I'm wrong on some of this, but the history of labor in Hollywood tells us that there'll be a small increase in residuals, hopefully a, a writer's minimum in those rooms. The AI protections, I think they'll get a lot of those, not all of them. Mm -hmm. But I don't know unless both unions hold the line. Yeah. I don't think they're going to get as much as we hope they would get. Yeah. Well, and that's my view. No, for sure. And it's just become this game of chicken. You know, these big studios have already said, we're going to push all this stuff and just hold it. And then the streamers like Netflix are saying, we got enough content for a while, baby. So it's like, who can hold out the longest? And I hate that it's a who can hold out the longest thing. And I get it, strikes are like that. But this is a who can hold out the longest for lots of writers and actors who were already in a place like L.A. or New York on the margins. Well, I want to pivot because we talked about Barbenheimer, which was very much created by the internet and social yeah. media. Yeah. And I think it took them by surprise. Took them by the surprise. The memory of it all. And they're already trying to duplicate you it. You can't duplicate it. You can't do it. It's alchemy. Yeah. I want to talk about two stories this summer mm -hmm. that I think represent the worst of Twitter Ooh. and the best of Twitter. Let's do it. Let's start with the bad. Earlier in August, President Trump was uh, booked in Georgia, where he faces 13 criminal charges in the state's election interference case. He now faces 91 criminal charges across four jurisdictions. But this is the first time we received a mugshot of the former president. You first started covering Trump on the uh, NPR Politics podcast back in 2015. Yeah. I know you have moved away from politics. Yeah. I know you even moved away from Washington, D.C. Yeah. But what did you make of seeing this photo? Did you think this day would come? My general theory on Donald Trump, and I, I was on the trail with him during that campaign season, like following that man around for a while. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I, I survived. Um, once he won, I think pretty quickly, especially after the Russia stuff, which, you know, kind of went nowhere, I said to myself, he may or may not win re-election. He may or may not be caught up on charges, but he will never see the inside of a prison. I just don't think it's going to happen. And I feel like this mugshot lets people believe that he might. I still don't see how this man goes to prison. I don't see it. I mean, I think if any case is going to do it, it's the Georgia case because it's state charges and not federal charges. So if he were to win re-election, he could pardon himself of any federal crimes, but he can't do it for state crimes, right? So this is the case that could stick the most. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people who work in politics and who think about these things are pretty worried about the unrest that might be unleashed should he go into a prison. Sarah Palin said recently that if he were to go to prison, we could be entering a civil war. It's like when the toddler says, if you don't give me a donut, I'll, I'll throw a tantrum in this store. So I feel like, are we giving the right a donut? But also, I don't want a tantrum in this store. <laughs> I don't I don't want another insurrection. He listed himself at six foot three, 215 pounds. I did pounds. see that. <laughs> cute girl, cute. A lie or a Zembic? Imagine Trump on Ozempic. 
I think if he's 215, it's, it's got to be. He's not 215. <laughs> I do. It's like, you know, I wonder how 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 much I should think about these like image moments, like a mugshot of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Is it a big deal? Is it not a big deal? I don't know. I know I saw it today and I was like, whoa. But I don't, I don't know. At this point, I don't know what about Donald Trump needs to get a rise out of me. Mm-hmm. It's been years of this man just being a fool. You know what I'm saying? Of course. I have lost a barometer <laughs> on, on any of this stuff, but I still think I'll never go to jail or prison. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the charges because Trump's arraignment came a day after he skipped the Republican debate, choosing instead to sit down with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson that was posted on X, which I'm almost certain is my least favorite sentence I've ever said I don't on this call show. It X. <laughs> That's what it said in the Times oh, report. I know, I know. But, but yeah, that, that, that was a hard sentence for you. I'm sorry about that. But um, let's play a clip that essentially amounts to a Trump allegiance oh, test. Oh, not the TV. For each of the Republican wow. debate. Wanna it's we, on a screen. Why don't we take a listen? You all signed a pledge to support the eventual Republican nominee. If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. Just hold on. So just to be clear, Governor Christie, you were kind of late to the game yeah. there, but no, you raised I, your hand. No, I'm doing this. Look, <laughs> look, I'm doing this. And I know this. you didn't. Whoa, whoa, no. Come, what's and the look? Would, would, look, here's the here's the bottom line. Someone's got to stop normalizing this conduct. Okay. Now, and now whether or not, whether or not you believe that the criminal charges are right or wrong. The conduct is beneath the office of president of the United States. Okay, Chris Christie. The bar is on the floor. (laughs) The the bar is on the floor. Sorry, go ahead. For those who haven't seen the video of that clip, four instantly raised their hands Mm -hmm. in support of Trump. Mm Mm-hmm. DeSantis and Pence wavered for a moment, then and looked around, then raised their hands. Yeah. Christie made some kind of weird gesture with his pointer finger that was kind of a hand raise, kind of a nothing. And Asa Hutchinson technically kept his hand down. But if anyone watched the debate, it's hard to know what he did because he has a very ghostly-like <laughs> presence <laughs> on stage. When you watch that, what are you thinking about, especially as we are entering this election cycle come fall? It's performance art. Chris Christie acting like he can in any way take a moral stand against Donald Trump after working for Donald Trump and helping him get elected. Mm -hmm. It's just performance art. I think all of these politicians want nothing more than to win at any cost or be a VP pick at any cost. And what they say about Trump and what they reveal about their thoughts on Trump will only be what they think will help them win. None of them will say what they really think about that man. And that is a problem with that party right now, because there's a conversation the RNC, the Republican Party, they're in the party, have on a microphone and in front of a screen. And there's a conversation they have when the mics are off and the cameras are off. Mm-hmm. And it's been that way since that man won his first primary. And you've seen that switch. I've had off the records with these people when I was following Trump. And like, as soon as I turned the mic off, then it really came out. As a politics reporter at NPR in 2015 and 2016, you saw that switch happen. Yes. And there were a few who 
Like, I'll never forget one night I caught Lindsey Graham at one of the early debates, I want to say in Vegas, and he let it, he, he, he kind of let Trump have it on my microphone and that made it into the story the next day. But within two months, he was like kissing Trump's butt. Knowing that when you see video like this, you can't look at it as an indicator of how they'll actually behave. You have to look at it as an indicator of how much they'll hide. That's what it is. You know, what came of that performance piece mm -hmm. and, of course, the mugshot was a series of increasingly unfunny jokes made online about Trump and silliness of the RNC. And I want to go to a story that I think demonstrated the best of Twitter. Oh, which is hard to hard to find these days. But there's one. Okay, what is it? That you're an expert on. Uh-oh. Who? What? Huh? Of course I'm talking about the Montgomery. Oh my god. Riverfront Brawl. You know I was just in Montgomery. Of course I know that. That's why we're doing oh this. My god. So for those that need a refresher since you yourself visited the scene of this historic <laughs> battle yes. down in Alabama. Hollowed ground. What happened on that fateful afternoon? And why do you think this became such a national story? Yeah. I mean, so many factors <laughs> came together to make this internet gold. But long story short, in the city of Montgomery, Alabama, you can take a big boat river tour on the river that's there. But also that water can be used for private boats, too. But they can't park their private boat where the big tour boat is supposed to go. Oh, I know. So hard. Anywho, this private boat full of a handful of white people tries to park in the spot where the big tour boat needs to come in. And then the black, either security guard or like co-captain, but he works for the tour boat company. He's kind of like, y'all can't be here. Instead of just moving their boat, these white people start to try to beat this black man up. But then the black dude throws his black hat up in the air and it is like a clarion call to the black Avengers of Montgomery, Alabama. And I kid you not, before you know it, all these black folks just show up to help this dude. Mm -hmm. One black man swims through the water to get to the dock and fight. Someone has a folding chair. And the whole time, you got black folks filming everything, offering color commentary. It was an amazing Spike Lee joint. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Everyone offering their color commentary That's beautiful. should get a contract from NBC. Peabody, Genius Grant, let them, all around Let deal. them on TV. Yeah. Let them yeah. replace a lot of the announcers in these sports yeah. games. Yeah. Let them go. Yeah. Let, them, let them cook over there. Well, and what I found so interesting... I see the video and I'm like, oh, Lord, are we going to have an Internet race war over mm -hmm. this? Even the white folks online were like, yeah, they, they deserved it. They deserved <laughs> it. They sure did. I was on my way to Montgomery uh, because my Aunt Betty just moved there. She retired and has gone back home to Alabama. She got a cute little house outside of Montgomery. I was going to go help her unpack for a week. And the brawl had just happened. And I was in my layover to get to Montgomery. And these very nice white people sitting next to me were also going to Montgomery. We just started chatting. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I'm chatting, being nice. And then they're like, 
do you know what you're getting into when you go to Montgomery? And I said, oh, well, that fight. And I said, yeah, that fight. Isn't it crazy? And I just say, isn't it crazy with like a little pause? And I'm like, let me see where these white ladies land. What are they going to say? So I'm quiet for a second. They're quiet for a second. Then they both go like, those white folks deserved it. And I was like, yeah, yeah. It, it, it felt like one of those moments that could have been like racial yes. kindling was mm-hmm. just like a, yeah, you deserve that shit. The brawl was the rare situation that basically everyone could agree on. Everybody could agree on. There are memes made. Oh my God. T-shirts produced. Yeah. You know, I, I went down there because my Airbnb was like two blocks from the side of the uh-huh. brawl. Black people were like coming in pilgrimage. <laughs> Just to see. I kid you not. There were people coming to take photos, just circling in and out. And then there was a minister in his full minister regalia mm-hmm. just there to talk. And you're like, what are you here for, dude? And he's like, I'm trying to keep the peace. And it's like, no, you're looking for a camera, but also funny. But no, it's, it's it's like a, it's a historic site. Did you feel the presence? I felt alive. What was in the air? Tell, I want to hear about that. The essence of folding chair was in the air. <laughs> It was it, it was just like it, there are commemorative chairs being sold. There better there be. have been songs made. Yes. Yes. It, it was mildly monoculture for the internet, which we don't get a lot these days. I like that. No one died. No one died. There may be a couple people concussed. Well, you know. Hey, that's that's life, baby. You opened the doors <laughs> you up. You opened the door. All he was trying to do was do his job. I'm trying to do his job. Seemed like a nice guy. Yeah. I also did not know, and I have been an African-American my entire life, did not know throwing up your hat in the air was an African-American bat signal. Now I'm like, where can I try this out? It, this whole story really does have a, a, a superhero Avengers-like oh quality oh to it. Do you think someone is putting the finishing touches on a Riverfront Brawl script? Yes, but they can't talk about it. We're on strike. <laughs> <laughs> we can. We we're can. not. Who do you want to direct it, write it, star in it? I'm glad you mentioned that because okay. on your show, Into It. Mm-hmm. You folks mentioned a couple people. Mm-hmm. One was Jordan Peele. Yes. Imagine Jordan Peele doing the bow brawl. Thought it was great. Great yeah. idea. You know. Then someone had an idea for Quentin Tarantino to direct. I brought that up because... Was that you? You know what? I, I don't love everything Quentin does, but I did really enjoy Django Unchained. Are you worried? Because he said multiple times he has one film left. You give him this material as his swan song... I'm just a little nervous about... But if we get Samuel L. Jackson as the boat company worker who throws the hat, imagine, imagine. Yeah. You need like a council overseeing it, though. I'm just a little nervous. We're going to have to have a sensitivity reader looking over <laughs> Quentin's shoulder the entire time because it can be a bit uh, problematic every now and then. Oh, before we move into your story, mm-hmm. is there anything we're missing was there a story that you maybe didn't get to tell or talk about on the pond that yeah. you want to do? There's a story that we're working on, pegging it to the release of the new Olivia Rodrigo album, which is Upon Us. It's going to be a juggernaut because she's a juggernaut. But I think if you look at these major cultural tentpoles of the year, Barbie, Beyonce, Taylor, and soon to be Olivia, this is the pop culture year of women. Mm-hmm. And thank God, thank God, when I think of the stars and celebrities and creatives having the most fun in pop culture right now, it's women. Mm-hmm. The men are sad. The men are angry. <laughs> Name one currently popular male rapper who's in a good mood. I also think it is also not just, oh, the girls have more fun. It's also that, like, I think that women creatives in general are better at expressing a full range of emotion in their art. And I think that a lot of times the men whose art I admire 
they don't have the emotional bandwidth that the women do. Mm-hmm. Not all. Like Chance the Rapper, as we know, has an emotional range that I quite enjoy. You know, we talked about the 10-year anniversary of his mixtape that really blew him up, Acid Rap. That mixtape feels really fun, but it's also full of some sad shit, too, and he can do both. But I find that that ability to do both and have an emotional range, right now at least, it seems the women are there and the men are not. Well, when we come back, let's talk about how you began doing this work and uh, try to figure that all out. Okay. I think we can. I hope so. Okay. We'll be right back with Sam Sanders. All right. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Coming back, you grew up in Seguin, Texas, right? Seguin, Texas. So this is a town probably half an hour outside of San Antonio. Okay. And as we grew up, we moved closer into San Antonio. And uh, my mother's last home before she passed was in San Antonio. 
She passed recently, right? She did. She passed June 21st of this year. How are you feeling? You know, it's like weird. My mother had been sick for a long time. She had a massive stroke about 20 years ago. And it had been, that was the same year your father passed? It was. Yeah. And so in some ways, I was used to my mother for the last two decades not being as present of a mother as she wanted to or could be because she was bedridden. So in some ways, the version of my mother that I knew in my childhood died once she had that stroke. But she was still there. And there was a different version of my mother that I knew and loved the last 20 years. But what has been the most fascinating thing to me in my mother's death has been the way I could feel everything about her all at once. I would tell friends that some days it felt like every memory I've ever had of her, every emotion I ever had about her was right at the surface. And it wasn't a good feeling and it wasn't a bad feeling, but it was often this close to being very overwhelming. And all of the things that had been sitting in the jar in which you held all your feelings about them, someone shook it up, someone spilled some of it. And there is this vast disorganization of my emotions right now. It's like all of the frames of the film are on the screen, either all at once or in rapid succession. I'm just like, I can't make sense of the movie. I'm going to try my best to help make sense. Okay. I don't know if I'll be able to. Okay. And I Also, I'm, all this to say, I'm not like, you know, on a bed of despair every day. I think in many ways I'm happy that my mother has found peace. She was sick for a long time and it was painful for her. Mm. So she's, you know, she's resting at least. And she's not my first parent to die. So at this point, a month plus later, I'm in general able to just like go about my day. But then there's just some moments where it's just like, oh, fuck, it hit me. But it could be so much worse. You know how you mentioned once she got sick mm -hmm. in 2002, mm -hmm. you were already in mourning of a past version of her. Yeah. I guess I want to understand if we were to go back a little bit. Yeah. Like what that past version looked like, because like we said, you're born in Texas, mm -hmm. the son of a rancher. Mm -hmm. She was a public school teacher. Mm hmm. I want to know how supportive she was because you're someone who has won a whole lot of awards for public speaking. That's nice of you to say. <laughs> You've won like countless. We, 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 I could list them all, but we'll be here all day. Oh. And yet public speaking was not always your strong suit. Not at all. From kindergarten to third grade, as I understand it, with the help of your Aunt Alta, mm -hmm. you were one of the best readers at St. James Catholic School. Whoa, how did you find <laughs> how did you find this? Yes, that's all true. Fourth grade, Sister Mary Ellen oh my God. asked for volunteers at St. James Catholic School to read aloud to your class. What happened? And I that used day? to be the best reader in class, and I remember this day in fourth grade, I just couldn't get the words out. I couldn't get the words out, and I was like, what the hell is going on? And I just realized like, like all of a sudden it's like I, I had this stutter. And it became even more pronounced as I went through school. And I continued to be a good student, mostly an A student and involved in things and active. But I had a horrible, horrible stutter that stuck with me, gosh, up through like maybe college, if not a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. And so I hated to read in front of class. I hated public speaking. I avoided these things for a very long time. And I think my mother and my father were very supportive of me in that entire period because they never made it a big deal mm -hmm. or a thing. You know, one of the worst things you can do with 
a young person who stutters is complete their sentences. And my parents were never those people. They also were never going to force me to do anything about it or around it if I felt really comfortable with it. My brother ended up in speech therapy when he was very young for some other verbal issues. And I think my parents knew that I just was not ready to do that kind of work on my stutter myself. I was a very, gosh, what do I want to say? I was a very guarded, stoic kid who was like not going to let anyone in to that. And my parents saw that in me and knew that. They never forced anything on me, but they were always just supportive. All this to say, by the time I got to high school and college, like the end of high school and college, I told myself that like the way to fix it would just be to put myself in situations in which I was forced to talk. I ran for student government and won. I was band president. In college, I was head of the Black Student Association. I was an RA and I was student government president in college. And so all of a sudden I had to do these things where I just had to talk. Mm. And eventually I kind of just kept talking. Immersion therapy. I guess. And honestly, I think, and I don't think I realized this until I was well into my career, I think the culmination of me getting over that stutter was choosing a profession in which I'd have to talk for a living. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, look at you now. Oh, you think you couldn't talk? Let's get an internship at NPR <laughs> where they just talk all day, you know? And so it was it was very much like forcing myself into forcing myself into a healing's the wrong word, forcing myself into just getting over it. It sounds like that in many ways shapes your approach to the work and, and then how you eventually dove into the work. Mm-hmm. The other half, as I understand it, throughout your childhood, you come of age in a pretty religious household. Yes. Evangelical Christian. Yeah, my mother was our Pentecostal church organist. And our church was so strict that the women couldn't wear jewelry or makeup. They couldn't cut their hair and they couldn't wear pants. The kids, we could not date or go to the movies or school dances, and we could only listen to Christian or gospel music. And yet, despite all of that, you once said that the church was the one place I knew that I wasn't going to be made fun of, but it was also the one place where I knew that I might hear the homophobic language over the pulpit. And yet I always felt, in this weird way, safe there. What do you make of that dichotomy now on how the church forced you to constantly compartmentalize? I think the church is not the only thing to ask people to compartmentalize. I think modern life is an exercise in compartmentalization. Even if you think about the version of your life that you share on Instagram and the version of your life that you live at home. I think so much of the energy of the black church and the way I felt treated by my church as a young black, obviously queer kid. What do you mean, obviously? Uh, you mean, yeah, you, baby, you had to see me. It was... <laughs> It was like, oh, that's he's in gay. It's very <laughs> obvious. But I think that like... I guess that was an obvious question. <laughs> yes, things happened in that church and the black church that are clearly homophobic. But I also remember people I looked up to in the church wanting to protect me. I think they knew that the world is not usually that nice to black men. It's even worse to queer black men. And they knew that. We were never going to have that conversation, but I felt that from them. And it was this weird, not healthy, sometimes form of protection. What did that look like? Telling you how to talk. Telling you what you can wear and not wear. You know, telling you that you shouldn't hang out with too many girls. 
in, in like a friend's way. Like all these things where it's just like shaping you and molding you and pushing you into heteronormativity in a way that is problematic, obviously, but also in a way that says, oh, we see this kid, we got to take care of him. And I'm able to say this now because I ended up leaving my church, leaving Texas in large part to go be gay, but no one ever kicked me out. No one was ever like, you got to go. I was back home for my mother's funeral and the church that I grew up in handled the services for us. My partner was there with me. Mm-hmm. It all went fine. You know, so it's not as if my experience in that church was entirely awful. A lot of the folks that I grew up with are still some of the closest people to me. Mm. And it's just multifaceted and it's complex. And I'm always wary of discussion or dialogue that would paint the black church is just a problem. Mm-hmm. It's not. No, I think you're in your quote that got us here. There's love. Yeah. And there's care and there's compassion yeah. and there's contradiction. And people love the best way they know how to love. That's right. And no one knows how to love perfectly. Especially not ourselves. Yeah. Maybe Beyonce. Imagine mm. Beyonce loving you. He was like, I that's great. I don't know if we want to go down. <laughs> Imagine cheating on Beyonce. I still can't believe Jay-Z did that. How did we get here? Sorry. I I would never imagine. (laughs) Imagine. Who does that? I I do imagine, though, when you did leave Texas Mm -hmm. to, what did you say? Did you say to be gay? To go be gay. (laughs) I'm the. In many ways, it sounds like you, I imagine you like remade yourself in each of these cities that you lived in. There's. South Africa for oh an internship. Goodness, yeah, yeah. Boston, New mm-hmm. Orleans, then uh, D.C. Mm-hmm. And then Portland, Oregon for a little bit, then L.A. for a spell, then back to D.C., then back to L.A. Well, so let's go back to D.C. Okay. After you double majored in, in political science and music in college, mm-hmm. you graduate, you eventually land that internship you mentioned at NPR in 2009. But in talking about like your talents as a public speaker, mm-hmm. even as recent as 2011, mm-hmm. You wrote in a blog post (laughs) that although I've gotten better, I still really prefer writing to speaking in the same way someone who's ambidextrous might still prefer to use the first hand they started writing cursive with. Yeah. When did that shift for you? Like, when did speaking become your more dominant hand? I honestly think speaking became my more dominant hand the more comfortable I got being gay. You know, by the time I got to NPR, I began as a producer behind the scenes and they would let me on the mic every now and then and I was reporting. But when I was hosting the NPR Politics podcast in 2015 and 16 and on the trail covering the candidates, I was very proud of what I was making, but it wasn't the fullest version of myself. I still wasn't out to listeners. You know, people close to me knew about me in my life and I was, you know, dating men and but I still was very private and guarded about it. And there was really, there was never any evidence that I am gay on my social media platforms at that point. And I would never talk about it on the microphone. And that just changed at some point between the politics podcast and launching It's Been a Minute. And I just began to talk more about my sexuality once I was hosting that show. And then I could hear it myself. I just sounded more in my body, in my voice. I sounded more in me. And every year that I have gotten more comfortable being exactly who I am, I think I sound better. 
I don't think I ever sounded horrible on the microphone. And I don't ever want to disrespect the version of myself that was making that content. Mm -hmm. But I think what led me to feel as comfortable as I do speaking now was simply learning to accept as much of me as possible. Well, I want to play a clip that I think... (laughs) What clip? What clip? That I think... Is you is, let me let me let me let me just stop for a second and say, all right, I interview a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I have been interviewed by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I think about interviewing a lot. Me too. No one does homework like you, sir. <laughs> you are advanced placement in this shit. Just hats off for that. Go ahead, as you were. Sam Sanders, I appreciate it. Yeah. And, you know, we got to show up for you. We got to show up. Oh, my God. Thank you. So I think the day that that shift begins to happen. Mm -hmm. It's the one-year anniversary of the mass shooting. Oh, shit. At a church in Charleston. Yeah, I had to go out and cover that mass shooting where Dylan Roof shot up that Black Baptist Church in Charleston. I covered that. Then a year later, on like the anniversary, was the Pulse nightclub shooting. The Pulse nightclub shooting. Yeah, and we talked about it in the politics podcast that week. And you get on a microphone. Oh, God, I sure did. And do what I think you do best. (laughs) Okay. Which is to make news stories human. Okay. This is you in 2016. Let's take a listen. You know, like whenever there's a tragic event, like you kind of always wonder when it's really going to hit you. So like I didn't really cry about it until this morning. And um, I was just thinking about like this idea of safe spaces. You know, Sarah just mentioned that a year ago there was a shooting in Charleston also an attack on a safe space for black people, the black church, right? And this was an attack on a gay club, which is a safe space for gay people. And on all, Latin night. On Latin night, right? So an, a doubly marginalized group of people, right? Um, and I was just thinking all week, all this talk of, of the idea of the gay club as a safe space. And then I was thinking back about Charleston being there and the black church as a safe space. And I didn't understand why I felt so weird about hearing about safe spaces all week. And then it it hit me this morning and it just really broke me up. Like the reason these marginalized communities have safe spaces and need safe spaces is because so often the space that they are every day is not safe for them. Right. And so, sorry, guys, Um, I just it hurt me to think that. In America today, there is still a need for safe spaces. Shouldn't all of the space be safe, right? Like, you think about the mother who lost her life in Charleston. The reason she needed that safe space is because she's not sure when she leaves the church if her son might be killed for carrying a bag of Skittles or if her father might die for selling loose cigarettes, right? And you think about the people in the club in Orlando. The reason they need that safe space is because they're not sure if when they leave, they'll get beat up for kissing their boyfriend, or if they'll be able to keep their jobs because they're gay, right? And so what I hope that we do after this is understand that lots of people in America, in this society, don't feel safe every day. And it's bigger than reaching out in solidarity after a shooting. It's a process that we should all be engaged in all the time. And I just hope that we can do that. God damn. Ugh. I, ugh. I don't think I listened to that one since it ran. It's funny, listening back to myself, I'm proud of myself for saying those words, but I can hear myself being so guarded. That's interesting. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Wow. 
Okay. Yeah. Is that the part that made you emotional? Hearing yourself guarded or was it being brought back to that time? I wish I could tell that younger version of me that it is okay to let your full self be a part of that in those stories. Right. It's okay. And in fact, it makes it better. And I think the difference between that Sam and this Sam is that I allow myself to be a part of the story if it feels right. And me, all of me. I am very grateful to have worked in institutions that have always supported my evolution of self. What I think in that moment was how well cared for I was in that moment on the show. Brent Bachman was the founding producer of the NPR Politics Podcast, and Beth Donovan, head of the Washington desk at that time, launched the show. And I remember in that moment, I went on much longer and I cried much more. And they took such care to edit that moment gracefully for me and to also not push me to say anything I didn't want to say. Mm. After I did the NPR Politics Podcast, I worked with Brent Bachman again to make It's Been a Minute. And he was my producer at a time when I was working through who I thought I wanted to be on a microphone. And at every turn, there was just support for my evolution of self, mm. if that makes sense. And I know, you know, when I left that company, there was a lot of talk of DEI and diversity and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want any of those complaints around the company to overshadow the fact that for 12 or 13 years, NPR was a place where I was allowed to grow and they supported it. Mm. So yeah, it's I I hear that old clip yeah. and I wish I could have been less guarded, but I also hear in that how much that institution supported me for a very long time. You know, you're talking about that moment, it, it, yeah. as, as we listen to it, yeah. you can hear yourself fighting for yourself a little bit. You're trying to break through. Yeah. And that's hard to do as, as anyone yeah. trying to make anything, you know, finding a voice is hard. Yeah. Well, and then sharing it's hard. And sharing it's fucking you know? hard. And I think hearing that and then seeing what came next yeah. with It's Been a Minute, did that moment on mic change the way you wanted to be on mic? Yeah. And, 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 yeah. and I guess the question is, then what is, was the way you want to be on mic? I want to be someone who lets other queer kids, other black kids, other Texans, other people raised evangelical, I want them to know that they can exist in the spaces I'm in. Mm and that we are allowed to be all of ourselves wherever we are. And I think that so often when you enter journalism or you enter creative fields, you kind of get the message that you're allowed to be yourself to a certain extent. And what I want to say is I get to be as fully embodied as a straight person who does this work as a white person who does this work, as whoever else. And I think that's that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in someone hearing themselves in my work who didn't expect to hear themselves. My favorite pop culture is that. It's that. I love white shit. I love straight shit. I watched <laughs> Friends twice. 
Twice? Yes, I did. During the pandemic, we all were down bad. I wasn't that bad. (laughs) I enjoy all kinds of content made by all kinds of people. But the stuff that really hits me the hardest surprises me by how much it speaks to my experience. If I can make stuff that is that for other people, Hmm. thank God. You've made it abundantly clear in a whole lot of interviews that NPR was a great place to learn, to work at. Literally, I was not a journalist before I got there. They supported you in so many ways. Yeah. And yet there is this quote you have from earlier this year on the Long Form podcast where you said after leaving NPR for New York Magazine and Vibe Check, which Mm -hmm. is on uh, Stitcher, Stitcher, you said around NPR, you need to see your job let you down enough to let you know that it can't be your everything. That is true. How did the job let you down? I'm not sure what that sound indicates. (laughs) I had to think very carefully leaving NPR, an institution as well-regarded and as big as NPR. I had to be very careful about what I say about that company once I leave because I never want my career to be mostly defined by whatever conflict existed with them. I just interviewed Chance the Rapper, loved it. Great moment for the show and for the team. I would feel bad if I say something about NPR now that becomes a headline that distracts from that. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? That said, every institution lets you down in the way that every other institution lets you down. None of it's surprising. I don't think I need to explain at this point the problems legacy institutions have with all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So I don't need to reopen it up in specificity to say that the larger theme here is that the company can't hug you back. It's a company. And so in some ways I felt very supported by that company in terms of editorial growth, but in other ways, when you are at an institution as storied as NPR or The Times or CNN or The Washington Post or whoever, you always have to fight the urge to think that you're in a family. You're not. So yeah, I gave you a very long answer that doesn't actually answer your question, but you know, what if both can be true? What if some things went down there that hurt me? And what if the majority of my experience there was beautiful. Isn't that any relationship? (laughs) Look, this has been a story of contradictions. Yeah. So that's a fair answer. Yeah. And instead of pushing on on that point specifically, you mentioned the Chance the Rapper interview. Yeah. Love Chance. I think it's maybe my favorite episode you've done on the show. Thank you. To bring it more full circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to ask you a question that you asked of him. Yeah. Man, you did your homework. I swear, I just give him a raise, y'all. And that is, do you think your trajectory in media and the experiences therein, Mm -hmm. do you think it says something larger about the way the media industry treats people of color? Mm. It says a few things. It says, okay, there's actually space here for someone like me. And I think that when I started my career, 
there was actually not space or companies who would pay for the kind of shows I'm making now, hosted by a kind of guy like me. Vibe Check has three hosts. We are all black and gay, and we allow ourselves to talk about whatever we want. The industry, the audio industry, was not paying for that shit mm-hmm. 15 years ago. Now they are. That's good. I host a podcast with Vulture called Into It that gets to take pop culture seriously. And it is editorially rigorous just as much as my hard news coverage was. The industry wasn't paying for that shit 15 years ago. A lot of what I've been able to do, I think, represents shift and change and possibility. But I want more of me. I want 12 vibe checks. Mm. I want 24 intuits. I want all the gays on a microphone. I want all the blacks on a microphone. I want all the Texans on a microphone. So that's what the trajectory reveals. It's like, I don't want to be out here by myself. Yeah, that's it. You know, that uh, that that battle between hard news and soft news? Yeah. It seems like one that you have been battling since you were... Since the start. A young boy yeah. growing up in Texas. Yeah. Where your father would get the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Oh, you really were... How did you do this? Oh, wow! Go ahead. <laughs> and he would open it up. Uh-huh. And what would happen? He would read the hard news. And I would just go for, like, the music coverage every Friday. The Express News, San Antonio Express News, would publish the Billboard Top 10 albums and Top 10 singles in the country. And I was obsessed with that. And I remember my dad never cared. <laughs> my dad never cared about that. And I was just like, bro, this is this is just as important as what was on A1. Would you make the case? Yeah, I should have. <laughs> I should have. Because when I think of like music in my youth, you know, I was a teenager in the like glossy, shiny, puff daddy, now diddy or whatever era of hip hop. And what he was doing was changing our national conversation on race and music, which is a big fucking deal. And this big story actually existed in the entertainment section. It's just as important as the other stuff. Mm -hmm. I've always been thinking about this. Uh, For a long time, I knew that I liked politics, but I also wanted to be a music critic for Rolling Stone. Mm. So I'm overall grateful that I've been able to get to this point in my career where kind of all the itches I've wanted to scratch they're being scratched. I'm very grateful. Do you think your father would have liked the show? No, but that's fine. <laughs> My father likes what he likes. He's also been dead, gosh, 21 years. My dad was like the show up dad. So he was older than my mother, which meant that he was retired and my mm. mother was working. So he was the one who did all the drop-offs and pickups. So he was, he wouldn't just drop me off at band practice. He would stay the whole time mm-hmm. and just watch. That's kind of dad he was. You know, like so many straight dads, in physically present, emotionally absent, <laughs> trying. But yeah, I think my dad would just be like, well, my son made this. I'm listening. That's better than him not finishing the newspaper. <laughs> yes. It's a small <laughs> consolation. Yeah. My mother, when she was living, she listens to the podcast every now and then, but she was a cable news girl. And I was like, I get it, girl. I get it. My Aunt Betty <laughs> listens to all ep- all of my episodes, <laughs> I think. We'll have to send her this one. Okay. My last thing for you. Mm-hmm. To bring it back mm-hmm. to the beginning. Mm-hmm. The summer's been a lot. It has. Your summer especially. Yeah. I'm sorry for your loss. I appreciate it. 
It's been a lot. Yeah. I'm tired. Yeah. You're tired. Yeah. We keep it rolling. Yeah. I guess the thing I want to get at in this moment where the climate crisis is accelerating. Oh God, yeah. The election cycle yeah, yeah, is about yeah. to kick into high gear. Yeah. Every day we receive horrible news. New New York Times push notifications. Oh, you better turn those push notifications off, dude. Preserve your <laughs> mental peace. Anywho, go ahead. No, they just, they feel, each one feels bleaker than the last. Uh -huh. As someone who has gone through all that you have, do you see your work as a kind of corrective to this doom and gloom? I see my desire in whatever phase of life I'm in to allow myself the time and space and ability and freedom to find joy in spite of. We were given advice on an episode of Vibe Check a few weeks ago, and a listener was basically like, climate crisis has me down, news has me feeling down, I'm so nervous and anxious about everything, the world is ending, what do I do? And I think I said something like, the world has always been ending. People always dance anyway, right? Like, no matter how shit gets, in war zones, at Black Lives Matter protests, you know, at funerals, people dance. And we always get to dance. So I don't know. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, in spite of how dire everything feels, you are always allowed a bit of joy as a treat. Always. And you're always allowed the space to find it. And you should allow yourself that space to find it and not feel guilty about managing to find joy in spite of. And to that end, I just hope that the work I make can sometimes be that joy for people. Mm. I think it is. Well, thanks, man. And I and I thank you for essentially keeping the music going <laughs> as we try to dance in what sometimes feels like end of days. Yeah. I don't want to be too apocalyptic. Maybe you're allowed to. But the joy you bring on your show in this conversation, I'm very grateful for it. I'm grateful for you. Let me tell you something, Get. I'm taking notes. You, I have not encountered a more well-prepared interviewer in my career. I'm not just making that shit up. So I bow. <laughs> I do. From you, Sam Sanders, it means uh, it means the world. Oh my goodness. I'm so glad we had this time together. As am I, and I'll, and I'll see you on your podcast. Okay, that's right. Week. You coming in next week. All right. <laughs> All right. Thank so you, long. Sir. So long. We did Ooh. it. We did it. Thank you. That was, you really covered the gamut. I tried. Oh my god. And that's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to leave us a review on Apple, give us five stars on Spotify. You can share the show on social media, share it with a friend, really anyone. All of it ensures that we can continue doing the work we do here each and every week. I want to give a special thanks today to the team at Vox Media and, of course, our guest, Sam Sanders. You can listen to both of his programs, Intuit and Vibe Check, wherever you are listening to this right now. I actually went on Intuit this past week. You can check out that episode. It's called Fall Preview, wherever you do your podcasting. For more conversations like this one, I'd recommend our episodes with podcasters like Kara Swisher, Estad Herndon, and Ezra Klein. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, 
Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our research and production assistant is Paulina Suarez. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara, Lindsay Ellis, and CJ Mitchell. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our illustrations are by Chris Shenoy. Photographs today are by Julius Chu. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Narvaez, Kira Posey, Tara Machado, Maya Koenig, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Tall Malad, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. Um, I do want to add before we go earlier this summer, I, I sat with my dad on the program on that episode. I think it's called uh, Beto and the Border. My father and I both mentioned my grandmother. Her name was Maria Socorro. This week, uh, she passed away. We lost her on um, August 28th at the age of 97. Um. There's much I can say and, and much I, I, I probably will say in the weeks and months to come. But for now, if you know some of my story, if uh, you've seen that short film I made about my grandfather, clearly, whatever we do here, whatever we've done here, whatever we will continue to do here on the show, it would not have been possible without her and the outright bravery it took to leave Mexico, to come to this country, to pursue a future that was incredibly uncertain, and um, to make something of herself as she did. May we all be so lucky to live a life as long and as rich and as full of meaning and joy as hers was. So um, this week she transitioned and... I always uh, end the show by saying, uh, you know, I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. But this week, probably more <laughs> than, than just about any other week, I am um, really proud to uh, say that last name loud and clear. So we will carry on, as we always do, and um, for the road. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with a new episode. Until then, rest in peace to Maria. Enjoy your long holiday weekend and uh, so long. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart.